This morning we have uh, some handouts. It's unusual that I use handouts in the morning worship service, but uh, if you don't come to our evening service, this will give you a sense of what goes on there. Uh, I regularly use handouts in the evening, but not uh, in the morning. But this morning we are going to be using them because we're going to be looking at a lot of different scripture passages. So it'll be a lot of flipping in your Bibles. Uh, We're talking about some uh, very difficult things. Uh, So it'll be a little easier for you to follow me. And if you get lost, you can catch up and see where we're at. Uh, So uh, we're distributing these these handouts. Again, welcome to to those of you from Victory Valley. Glad to have you here. Uh, Would you stand just so everybody can gawk at you? And... uh, uh, yeah, all right, very, very good. Okay, thanks for coming. All right. Anybody in need of a handout? I think they're all distributed at this point. Anybody, anybody in need? There's enough for everyone to have one that would like one. Okay, thank you. The introduction. Two weeks ago, we considered that God had a purpose in having mercy upon those whom he has mercy and in hardening those whom he will harden. And uh, we looked at particularly the example of Pharaoh, for that's what the passage gives as an example, But uh, that whole aspect that uh, God hardens whom he will harden and has mercy upon whom he has mercy leads to another question, and that is, if God's purpose is fulfilled in those whom he hardens, why then does God still find fault with them as being sinful? If God has a purpose for those whom he does not choose, and those whom he does not choose fulfill that purpose, why does God find fault? Key verses... Romans 9, 18 and 19. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I put the NAS there because the word can is not actually in the original. Uh, As the NAS translates it, you will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? That's the question we're going to ask this morning. Why does God find fault? with those who accomplish his purpose, uh, and yet he still finds fault with them. Issue number one. What we are to understand by Pharaoh's hardened heart. The scripture says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What did God do? A, there are 18 references in the book of Exodus of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. There are three different Hebrew words translated into English as the word hardened. There is an addendum at the end of this handout of three pages of which I give you all the verses of uh, where it talks about Pharaoh's heart being hardened and I give you an A, B, or C so you know which Hebrew word is being used in that particular verse in case you'd like to do some study on your own. Moving on. Number one. The first word is used 12 times in Exodus referring to Pharaoh's heart. The word means to be resolute. It also means to shore up or strengthen. It is quite similar to our word for the hardening of cement. Thus Pharaoh's heart became like cement. Nothing permeated it or moved it. It could no longer be worked with. So when God hardened 
Pharaoh's heart in this sense, it really speaks of withholding his grace. He didn't have to actually do anything to harden his heart, even as you don't have to do anything to harden cement. What you have to do is counteract the hardening of cement by adding chemicals in order to try to keep it malleable. Well, uh, God withheld his grace from Pharaoh. Number two, the second Hebrew word that is translated hardened is used five times in reference to Pharaoh's heart. It means to make heavy. It is a word that is used elsewhere in connection with eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. They have heavy eyes. They have heavy hearts, uh, ears. They do not hear. The third Hebrew word is translated hardened is used once in reference to Pharaoh's heart, and the word means to be obstinate. So, C, observations concerning the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. First, the scripture repeatedly refers to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Example, Exodus 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. Exodus 8.32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. Exodus 9.34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. So we begin by talking about the fact that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That's important for us to realize because God did not take a good heart and make it evil, but rather Pharaoh's heart was already hardened, already sinful, already evil. Number two, Pharaoh sinned and was accountable for his hardened heart. Exodus 9:34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he, that's Pharaoh, sinned yet against and hardened his heart. So Pharaoh is sinful in this process, and he's sinful for hardening his heart. <clears throat> Thus, God is indeed finding fault with Pharaoh for what Pharaoh does. That is, he sins. Number three, Pharaoh's hardened heart was in keeping with the plan of God. Exodus 7:13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Exodus 7:22. Again, as the Lord had said. Exodus 8:15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart, would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Exodus 8, 19, then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So there's this recurring theme of the fact that when Pharaoh's heart was hardened, that's exactly what God had said would take place. That's what God had told Moses was going to happen. <clears throat> so God was not taken by surprise by Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Four, in 11 separate verses, it is stated that God would or did harden the heart of Pharaoh. I don't list all those for you, but uh, you can see them in the addendum. 11 separate verses, it stated that God would or did harden the heart of Pharaoh. So A, these verses are meant to teach us that God's statement that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened was more than a mere prediction. For God would harden the heart of Pharaoh. God would withhold that which would be necessary to soften Pharaoh's heart. 
Pharaoh had set his heart on a course that God would not change. All right? So when we talk about having mercy and hardening, they're not symmetrical. There is a, an activity of God that is more profound in his having grace than there is in the sense of hardening. All right? But rather, we should think of, of hardening more in the terms of withholding grace. <clears throat> withholding grace. Uh, B, these 11 verses teach us that God is not ashamed of hardening Pharaoh's heart. Rather, he wants all the world to understand that he did it. All right? So these recurring statements that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's important for us to realize that because the purpose of the plagues was not to change Pharaoh's heart. The purpose of the plagues was not to bring Pharaoh to repentance. The purpose of the plagues was not to change Pharaoh in any way. The purpose of the plagues is given to us in Romans, where it says, for this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in you. It was for God to display his power through the plagues. Therefore, the plagues were not ineffectual. The prayers, the, the, the plagues were powerful. They accomplished what they were intended to accomplish because they never were intended to accomplish the repentance of Pharaoh. Three. As I said, the purpose of the plagues was for God to demonstrate his power, which he did. That's how Pharaoh's hardened heart accomplished the purpose of God. His resistance, his disobedience to letting the children of Israel go provided the occasion for God to send the plagues. Five, here. So further, Pharaoh's heart being hardened was in keeping with God's plan or purpose. Here we learn great truths about grace. First, it is not the circumstances of life that change men's hearts. Rather, it is the grace of God at work in the hearts of people in the midst of circumstances. It's important for us to realize that there is no event in and of itself that has the power to bring about faith. There is nothing that someone is going to go through that necessarily is going to produce faith in their life, such as two thieves hanging on the cross with Jesus in between. One comes to faith, one does not. They're observing Jesus, they're experiencing the darkness, they're experiencing the earthquake, they're experiencing the exact same events have two different outcomes. For the events do not determine faith. I remember having a conversation with an individual when I was at Pinebrook one summer, and there was a, a, a submarine that was uh, lost power and was at the bottom of the ocean. And I don't remember the exact number of crewmen, something like 17 or 22 crewmen. And a person said to me, Pastor, don't you think those 17 or 22 people are going to have to come to know the Lord as a result of all that they're going through? And I was trying to be nice in the sense I'm, concerned, I'm glad that they're concerned about these individuals. I said we should be praying for them. 
uh, we should be praying. And the reason we should be praying for them is because there is no circumstance that's going to guarantee. Just because a person knows that they're about to die doesn't mean that they are going to repent. It's not the circumstances of life. Number one, no circumstance of life that a person will encounter will bring them to God apart from God's grace. Not even the plagues in Egypt in and of themselves uh, were going to change the hearts of those that experienced them. That's why we need to be praying for the salvation of the lost. Contrary, number two, no circumstance of life can overthrow a person's trust in God if God is administering grace to that person. All the injustices that Joseph encountered did not dissuade him from a faithful allegiance to God. That was Romans chapter 8. That there is nothing that is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So the, positive, the negative is, there is no event or circumstance that is going to guarantee that a person comes to faith. Conversely, there is no event or circumstance that can destroy a person's faith. For faith does not rest in the events and circumstances of life, but faith rests in the grace and goodness and power of God. D. The scripture also gives us insight as to how the means that God used in hardening Pharaoh's heart. So when we talk about the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it's easy to jump to some conclusions as to what that means or how that might take place or what it would look like. But the scripture actually informs us as to the means, the process that God used to harden the heart of Pharaoh. Number one, God hardens men's hearts by allowing the works of the evil one to prosper. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened. In this instance, it was turning the Nile into blood. And there is this great miracle that takes place. And these magicians perform a copycat miracle. That, again, was within the purpose and plan of God. For he was going to use that copycat miracle as a way of hardening the heart of Pharaoh so that Pharaoh would not be as impressed by what just happened because these magicians are going to do a, a similar work. And the scripture forewarns that in the last days that the false prophet's going to come. We've been in the book of Revelation. He's going to perform a lot of miracles. He's going to, to perform uh, great deeds. And those great miracles and deeds are going to be a way in which people's hearts are hardened. Uh, they are going to not believe the true miracles because they're not going to be impressed because of these false miracles. And the scripture says, so... Pharaoh's heart was remained hardened. Number two, God hardens men's hearts to be hardened by allowing them to experience a measure of peace in the midst of their sinfulness. So God would perform these plagues through the instrumentality of Moses. And if you remember, Pharaoh would repent to a degree. He'd uh, ask for these plagues to be removed, and they'd be removed. 
Well, Exodus 8.15. But when saw, Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 9.34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. So here it's the respite. Here is the goodness and grace of God in causing these plagues to stop. And Pharaoh calls out while the plague is going on. But as soon as the plague is over, Pharaoh's right back to his old ways of being disobedient and fighting God and refusing to let the children of Israel go. <clears throat> and I have here how often it is when people are in trouble, they turn to God. However, when the crisis passes, so does their commitment to God. People quickly revert to their formal sinful practices. We all can think of people, I'm sure, whether they have marital problems, whether they have financial problems, whether, whatever the case may be, in the midst of that trouble, they look to God. One person has said there are no atheists in foxholes. There are a tendency when things go bad to cry out to God. But as soon as they get better, they walk away. Well, that's actually a form of God's hardening. Here, the goodness and grace of God in the sense of bringing a respite to pass for those who do not have faith, that actually hardens and causes them to go back to their old ways. Third, God causes men's heart to be hardened by withholding the grace to understand the benefits experienced by God's people. Exodus 9, 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. In a number of the plagues, there was a distinction that God made between the Israelites and the Egyptians so that they would be so beyond displayed that God was acting in a way uh, for his people that he was not acting uh, towards those uh, who uh, were not exercising faith. So verse 7, it says, And Pharaoh sent, and key word in this verse is behold. And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. So God sent a plague. It destroyed the livestock of the Egyptians, but behold, stop, look, see that it didn't destroy the flocks, the herds of the Israelites. Those whose heart is hardened fail to see the distinction that exists in the blessings that come on the believer as opposed to those who do not know Christ. They, they fail to, to recognize the goodness. They fail to recognize the, the progress in a person's life. They fail to recognize all the, the goodness and mercy of God sending his son to die on the cross. They just don't see it. And that's a way of their heart being hardened. Number four, God allows men's heart to be hardened through the company that they keep. Exodus 9.34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Now this, he 
and his servants. So his servants were no help to Pharaoh in his spiritual need. His servants did not see God at work either. The servants didn't get what God was doing. Conversely, David, for example, was very concerned about the kind of servants that surrounded him. Psalm 101, verse 6. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He's talking about actually in the palace. That they will dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. So David was looking for faithful, godly servants to surround him in the palace and to minister to him. If you know the the story of David and his sin, he committed a sin in having a sexual relationship with Bathsheba. She was married, so he had committed adultery. And then he tried to hide the adultery by having her husband killed. And he did have her killed. And for a period of almost a year, David was in a very unrepentant state. But David had a servant. David had a prophet that was named Nathan. And God sent Nathan into David to confront him. That is God's grace. That is God's mercy. That's also the wisdom of David, to be surrounded with those kinds of people. So, five. Thus, the scripture warns us against hardening our own hearts. Psalm 95, verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah or in the day of Massa. So, what are we supposed to do not to harden our hearts? A, we harden our hearts by the company that we keep. Um, In the New Testament, book of Timothy, it says, flee youthful lusts with those that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Surround yourself with godly people to help you resist physical temptation. That's why it's so important that when you date, you date somebody of high moral character so that when you might stumble, they will be strong, or when they might stumble, you will be strong. But you want to surround yourself with people of moral integrity. If you surround yourself with people without that moral integrity, it's going to harden your heart. It's going to cause you to be less sensitive, less malleable, less willing to be obedient to God. B, we harden our hearts by the failure to recognize God's activity in our lives. We grow insensitive when we don't give thanks and praise to God for what he is doing and acknowledging his blessings to us. And if we take credit for uh, all the things that we enjoy, it's going to cause a hardness of heart. C, we harden our hearts by the resistance of God's instruction and rebuke. The more we hear God's word and fail to obey it, the more hard we become, the more insensitive we become, the more easy it is for us to just ignore what God's word has to say. It's a dangerous thing to hear what we're to do and not do it, even as Pharaoh was told time and time again to let the people go. And D, we harden our hearts by reverting to our sinfulness when we experience a respite from the consequences of our sinfulness. You know, uh, when things get better, all of a sudden the Bible reading slows down, 
the, the prayer is less. But when things are tough, when things are hard, we have the sleepless nights. Boy, that's when we're praying. That's when we're reading the scriptures. That's when we're looking and saying, God, help me. But the crisis passes and we go back to our old ways. Number two. <clears throat> Issue number two. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is illustrative of how God normally, and I would circle that, how God normally works and is not to be understood as an exception to the rule. Uh, Pharaoh is an example for us all, not just this one-off example of this unique working of God in the life of Pharaoh. For Pharaoh in the passage is teaching us what it means that God has mercy on some and hardens others. So, Romans 9.18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So it is broader than just Pharaoh. A. God hardened the hearts of the nations round about Israel. Joshua 1.18 and following. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was of the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. So here are all the nations round about Israel uh, where their hearts are hardened. For it was God's purpose to give the land to the land of Canaan. These individuals came and fought against uh, the Israelites because their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened because they did not see the power of God. They thought they could defeat the Israelites even though they saw what God did in destroying the army of Pharaoh, of causing the Israelites to cross the Red Sea on dry ground, to cross the Jordan on dry ground. They didn't see it. Their hearts were hardened. They fought against Israel. They lost. B, God hardened the hearts of the Jews that did not believe. Romans 11, 7, and 8. What then? It, Israel failed to obtain, was seeking, the elect obtained it. Now notice this. But the rest was hardened. So we find that there's two categories. There's the elect, those that God has mercy, and the rest are hardened. Everybody who's not elect falls into the category of being hardened. So what we're talking about Pharaoh is we're talking about lost people in general. C, a person falls into one of two categories. Either they are one upon whom the Lord shows mercy or they are one whom he hardens. Romans 9, 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. He has and he hardens whomever he wills. So you're either receiving mercy or your heart's being hardened. Number three. God's sovereign purposes are accomplished in the sinful acts of individuals. Here's the nitty-gritty of the passage that what is driving home. That is... God's sovereign purposes are accomplished in the sinful acts of individuals. God had a purpose 
in saving Jacob and not saving Esau. God had a purpose in showing mercy and and hardening the heart of Pharaoh. So that leads us to the question, if God's purposes are done in those whom he hardens, why then does God still find fault with them? Romans 9, 19. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? A. The demonstration that God's purposes are accomplished in the sinful acts of individuals. Number one, God's sovereign purposes are accomplished in the sinful acts of individuals illustrated in Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up. It wasn't an accident that Pharaoh was in that position. God had placed him in that position. God had a purpose. God had a reason. God's sovereign purposes are accomplished in the sinful acts of individuals illustrated in Joseph's brothers. Now this morning I am assuming a rather uh, high level of biblical knowledge uh, among you. All right? I hope you know these, these stories. But Joseph is the story of one of many brothers who became envious of him, jealous of him. His father treated him with a special uh, love and concern because he was his youngest. Gave him a coat of many colors, for one thing. Well, his brothers became angry at him and uh, decided they were going to kill him and then at the last minute decided instead of killing him, they're going to sell him into slavery into Egypt. They did. They sold him into slavery in Egypt. In Egypt... Uh, Joseph suffers at the hand of uh, Potiphar, and uh, he has to be thrown in prison. He's in prison, and ultimately God exalts him and places him in a place of authority in the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. There's a great famine that comes, and uh, Joseph is able to uh, handle that famine in such a way that there's food for all the peoples uh, that is necessary, which brings us to Genesis 15:20. As for you, this is Joseph now talking to his brothers after his father has died, towards the end of his life. As for you, referring to the brothers, you meant evil against me. Right? What motivated you was absolutely evil. It was terrible. It was your hatred for me. <laughs> There's nothing commendable about what you did. But God meant it for good. God had a purpose. God had a reason for me being sold into bondage in Egypt. And that was, end of the verse, to bring about many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God is using this to spare the physical lives of many, many people. But that's not what you wanted. That's not what motivated you. You meant evil. B, the demonstration that God is responsible for his purposes being accomplished in the sinful acts of individuals. Here we see that, that, here, here we see that, that God isn't just the ultimate chess player. Uh, God isn't just simply reacting to what other people are doing and 
he's so much brighter and smarter than mankind that no matter what move we make, he has a counter move that is going to, to trumpet and eventually, uh, you know, win the chess match. Uh, now, God has actually got a plan that he is working out a plan that he has made before the foundation of the world. And everything is serving that plan. So, the demonstration that God is responsible for the purposes being accomplished in the sinful acts of individuals. Number one, God is responsible for his purposes being accomplished in the sinful acts of individuals illustrated in Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. It's talking about the activity of God. God placed Pharaoh in this position of authority. Two, God is responsible for his purposes being accomplished in the sinful act of individuals illustrated in the life of Joseph, the one that we just looked at. <clears throat> but notice verse 7 of chapter 45. Again, he's talking to his brothers. And God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me here. How did God send him there? By his brothers selling him into bondage. And yet, Joseph says, God sent me here. That there was something greater than the evil activity of the brothers. There was a purpose of God. And that ultimately, God had sent him there. Number three, God is responsible for his purposes being accomplished in the sinful acts of individuals illustrated in the crucifixion of Christ. This is the sermon on the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So the reason that Jesus goes to the cross is because of God's plan and foreknowledge. And there it's more emphasis of love than it is of awareness ahead of time. <clears throat> All of this is being achieved because God wants it to happen. Isaiah 53, verse 10 says, concerning the crucifixion, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So who put... Jesus on the cross. The scriptures teach that ultimately, ultimately, the final cause, or the first cause, depending on how you want to look at it logically, is God. Everything else was serving his purpose. Everything else was being done in keeping with God's plan. Number four, it is because God's purposes are accomplished in the sinful acts of individuals that we can say with confidence that all things work together for good to them who love God. Romans 8.28, back to where this whole thing started. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That in the plan of God... Everything in our lives as children of God 
Everything in our life ultimately serves the purpose and plan of God. Even the sinful acts of others. Even when my boss overlooks me for promotion. Even when the thief breaks into my house. Even whatever sinful act it is that people do with the intent of being wicked and sinful ultimately is under the authority of God and works together to accomplish his overarching purpose. C. The demonstration that God is responsible for his purpose being accomplished in the sinful acts of individual, but God is not responsible for the sinfulness that motivated their actions. This is the ultimate answer to the question why. Why does God still find fault? Here's the answer. The demonstration that God is responsible for his purpose being accomplished in the sinful acts of individuals, but God is not responsible for the sinfulness that motivated their actions. Number one. Those evil motives come from their own heart. The evil motives came from their own heart illustrated in Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. That was Pharaoh's evil, sinful heart. I don't know the Lord. I'm not going to obey him. I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. Keep that in mind as we move forward. The evil motives come from their own heart, illustrated in the brothers of Joseph. Again, when Joseph confronts his brothers, he says, as for you, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. They were not trying to save people's lives. They were not aware that there was going to be a famine. They were not taking God into account. They were not taking anyone else into account. It was their pure, sinful, evil heart that wanted to punish Joseph and get even with him that said, let's sell him into slavery. That's what is condemned. That evil, sinful heart that says, let's sell them into slavery. See, the evil motives come from their own heart, illustrated in those who participated in the crucifixion of Jesus. These are all the same verses. I'm just highlighting different aspects of them. Acts 2.23. This Jesus, this is the sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter speaking. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Here's the activity. Here's the purpose of God. It was God's purpose that Jesus die. You, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I prefer the translation of the NAS. 
And you have taken, and by wicked hands, crucified and slain. They, when they nailed him to the cross, when Judas was betraying Jesus, when the crowd was crying, crucify him, crucify him, they were not seeking the salvation of mankind. They were not trying to further the purpose and plan of God. They, in their wickedness, knowingly sought to put an innocent man to death. And God did not place within them that wickedness to put an innocent man to death. When Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. Three times he said that. Three times he realized that Jesus was innocent. He then said to Jesus, do you not know that I have the power to release you? Jesus said to Pilate, you have no power but that which comes from God. You have no power to put me to death. But Pilate knowingly put an innocent man to death. Why? Because he was wicked. Because he was sinful. So the conclusion. God finds fault with a sinful mankind that is hardened because their actions are truly sinful and their hearts are truly corrupt. That's why he finds fault. B. Though their actions ultimately serve the sovereign plan of God, their intention is just the opposite. They do what they do out of the worst of motives. They are seeking to oppose God, and their intent is evil in doing what they do. That's why they're being condemned. They are not trying to serve God. They're trying to oppose God. But Psalm 2 says, God sits in heaven and laughs. For he cannot be opposed. See, God does not take a good heart and make it sinful and corrupt. That's absolutely essential for us to understand. He takes sinful men to do sinful things. But he does not create the sinfulness. But it serves his plan and purpose. D, however, sinful mankind cannot thwart the plan of a sovereign God. Even their rebelliousness is overcome and will ultimately serve to advance the cause of Christ. That's why he keeps telling us that when Pharaoh would not let the people go, that his heart was hardened just as Jesus, just as God had said. Pharaoh was not winning when he refused to let the children of Israel go. God's plagues were not ineffectual when Pharaoh refused to let the people go. Because God wants us to know that he's in control. His purpose was not to bring Pharaoh to repentance. His purpose was to show his power that all the earth may know of the power and glory of God. 
and his purpose was fulfilled. His power and glory was demonstrated in an incredible way through the plagues that were pouring out. But Pharaoh is still accountable for that wickedness of saying, who is the Lord? I don't know him. I will not let the people go. So, why does he still find fault? Because mankind is sinful and worthy of finding fault. Next week, we will look at the next four or five verses that give us two more reasons to answer that question as to why uh, God uh, still finds fault with those that accomplish his purpose. Uh, let us pray. Almighty God, uh, I, I pray that this would not just be an exercise of uh, academics, but Lord, help us to realize that you are a good God, you are a gracious God, you are a sovereign God. And no matter how much a puny mankind seeks to overthrow your kingdom and your plan, it can't be done. We cannot resist you. We cannot thwart you. We cannot overcome you. I, I pray, oh God, that you would help us understand that in our own individual lives as we deal with many, many injustices and we think about things that have come into our lives and they bring us great sorrow or they bring us great misery. Oh Lord, may we realize that these things have not separated us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, nor are they because the evil one is stronger than you or because we are under the power of some tyrant or because our boss is more powerful than you. But all these things serve a purpose, a purpose of drawing us closer to you, a purpose of showing forth your passion and, and, and mercy for us in the midst of these things. Lord, we're, we're going to see more of this in these next two weeks. But Lord, I, I pray that today you would give us confidence. Confidence in your sovereign goodness. And Lord, a, a confidence in your sovereign justice that those with whom you find fault are worthy of condemnation. There is no injustice in you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.